Good morning and welcome. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I think this may be, well, at least one of, if not my favorite chapter uh, in the book of Romans. The reason being, it reminds us of the, the power that we have through God's Spirit. I'm going to look at uh, verses 1 through 11. And Paul writes here, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That was an anemic amen. I think there's a few more here that are in Christ Jesus than that, I hope. <laughs> uh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And Lord, we rejoice in this good news. Lord, Paul reminds us at the beginning of this book that it's the gospel of God. And Lord, we thank you for the blessed and wonderful freedom that has come to us Lord, we were reminded in these last two chapters how, Lord, in many respects we were slaves to sin. But, Lord, you have wonderfully, Lord, you've emancipated us. You've set us free, Lord. We thank you for the glorious liberation that we have, Lord, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, our, the world around us awaits that. And, Lord, we thank you that we have become, in many respects, in our families, Maybe in our neighborhood, Lord, we become first fruits, first fruits of what you have wonderfully and awesomely done. So, Father, I pray that as we, Lord, consider um, and spend, Lord, some time here over the next few weeks in this eighth chapter, Lord, we pray for new insight. Lord, we pray that there would be more than just an intellectual assent more than just an agreement 
with these things. But that, Lord, there would be a power transfer. That power that we, that we lack. That area of need in our lives. Lord, if there be any addiction, Lord, any weakness that is dominating, controlling our life, any besetting sins, Lord, we look to you. We've demonstrated time and time again our powerlessness, our inability, Lord, to really change our lives. Lord, you know we've tried. But Lord, we thank you that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that you can accomplish what we were not able to. And Lord, we, we open our hearts afresh to that blessed and glorious power that comes to us, resurrection power. Lord, power over, Lord, the, the things that once dominated, controlled our lives. I pray, Lord, that, Father, as we, Lord, just navigate through this chapter, that there would, Lord, be a, a wonderful difference in our lives, that there be victory. Victory, Lord, where there's been defeat. Lord, where there's been an ongoing struggle, Lord, we look to you. Lord, dispatch, we pray, that fresh measure of your blessed spirit, Father, into our hearts, into our lives. Lord, may our hearts and minds be open to all that you have, all that you desire. Lord, sometimes we're afraid to let go of things because we think, Lord, somehow we won't be happy. But Lord, you have so much better Lord, relationship with you is so much more than all that this world has to offer. So, Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord, for your resurrection power. And, Lord, as we read about it, Lord, again, may there be that, that transfer, Lord, into our hearts, into our lives. Father, I pray, quicken our faith. Lord, give us a hunger. Give us a thirst. Give us a passion for all the things that you have, Lord, for each and every one of us. For Lord, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. And we commit this time to you now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, we entitled uh, this piece this morning, uh, By My Spirit. And if you're familiar, perhaps, with a book by that title, uh, that's where I borrowed it. And it's, uh, it was written by Jonathan uh, Goforth. Uh, and he tells a story, many different stories. Uh, he was very much involved in the great Chinese revivals that began in the year 1900 and went on for uh, probably about 10 years or more. Um, and I was just reading it recently and just a very powerful um, testimony to the grace of God and how God has wrought and changed and worked um, in so many situations that seem to be so dead, so lifeless. Uh, where, where the churches that he ministered to, uh, he would often hear his testimony that, that uh, well, if you go to that church, uh, nothing's going to happen. Things are so dead at that church. And, and it's interesting, all the different warfare and the things that he faced, but yet uh, God wonderfully worked. And of course, uh, by my spirit is, is really taken from Zechariah 4.6, uh, where the Lord says there uh, to, uh, through Zechariah to Zerubbabel and a lot of the, um, those who had come back from captivity. It was about basically 
you know, setting a foundation, building a temple, and, and it seemed so impossible to them. Uh, and Zechariah, God said to them, it's not, by, you know, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. In other words, it's not by the strength of man, it's not by the intellectual, you know, power of man, but it's by the spirit of God. He is the change agent. He has always been the change agent. Uh, sometimes, again, we read these stories of what has God has done, you know, in revivals, and we hear testimonies. But uh, do we really believe that he wants to do it for us? The fact of the matter is God wants to work in us. Uh, he wants to, to make a difference, you know, in our lives, to make a difference in our families, to make a difference in our culture, <coughs> pardon me, in our society. And you know what? I don't think I've ever seen it worse in our country in our nation, with what's going on in our culture. And I think, you know, we get anesthetized to it because it's a process, isn't it? It's kind of a process, and you kind of get used to what's, you know, kind of going on. But I'll be honest with you, I've never seen it worse. Uh, and if there's ever, uh, we were praying yesterday, a number of us were praying uh, in Saturday morning prayer meeting that God would bring a fresh new, whether it be mini or whether it be a widespread uh, thing, a, a Pentecost that God would bring a fresh work of his spirit to bear, you know, upon our lives and upon our hearts. Certainly, uh, we need it. Now, in all of Romans, we find chapter 8 is unrivaled in its emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Nineteen times. As a matter of fact, we read this morning uh, 11 out of 11 verses, references to the Holy Spirit. And there's 19 in this chapter. Do you know up until this point in Romans, there's only been two references to the Holy Spirit? in the entire book up to this particular point. Uh, and of course, as we looked at last week, um, you know, chapter 7, and Paul speaking there, you know, particularly as he moved toward those last couple of verses, 24 and 25, you know, he spoke about, you know, his, you know, the, the constant failure, the defeat sometimes. And maybe perhaps that may be, if we're honest, that may mark our lives. A certain degree of spiritual defeat and setback and, and failure and not being able to get beyond certain issues, you know, within our lives. And the Lord wants to take us from chapter 7, and he wants to, to move us into chapter 8. And, uh, and, and he desires to do that. No matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how, you know, how oftentimes, you know, I think sometimes when we look at our lives, you know, we, we regarding our struggles, we oftentimes, you know, we know that God can work. We know that God can do certain things. But sometimes when it comes to our own particular struggle, we feel like we don't really have faith because we've repeatedly uh, gone back and struggled with different issues and different situations in our lives. We think, well, gee whiz, I'm never going to get victory here. And sometimes we can give up. Sometimes our faith can simply hit the wall. And maybe, maybe it's because we've been relying too much upon ourselves. And we need to rely more and more upon God's blessed spirit and what he can do. So hopefully, as we read this, that it will move us some degree closer. And hopefully, it will get us out of that, that cycle of defeat or bondage that Paul speaks about there when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. And uh, I think all, at different times, we've all prayed that prayer, haven't we? Oh, wretched person. Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep saying that? Why do I keep thinking this? And then he says uh, there in that final verse, 25, he says, but I thank God through Jesus Christ. He's our deliverer. And so um, 
you know, in the original letter that Paul wrote, there was no chapter break. You know, chapter 7 flowed right in to chapter 8 here when Paul says, uh, there is therefore now no uh, condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, and what he's saying here, basically, uh, that there's no charges against us, that uh, there's no future punishment hanging over our head. You know, God isn't angry and chasing you down. Uh, the fact of the matter is that there's no condemnation because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we have to remember that because sometimes, you know, Satan gets us, tempts us into sinning. And sometimes you get into a pattern or a habit of certain sins. And you feel that, you feel that distance, you know, that separation that can take place in our relationship between uh, the fellowship is interrupted. But we still have a relationship. We're God's son. We're God's daughter. Uh, but that fellowship can be interrupted. We think, you know, God's angry with me. But the fact of the matter is, there is no condemnation in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, remember this, he's not angry with his bride. Uh, he's perfecting us. He's, he's working us. Yes, there's correction. Yes, there's chastisement. There needs to be those things. But the fact of the matter, he isn't condemning us. So Jesus said over in John chapter 3, if you want to turn there, if not, I'll read it to you. But this is really what condemns a person. The condemnation is not for the believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, in chapter 3, uh, Jesus is speaking here in verse 17 when he says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And, and when you think about that, uh, you know, as, we, as we're given a gospel message, it isn't a gospel message to condemn people. You know, you're going to hell, you know. Yeah, no wonder we've got so many converts, you know, and we... Uh, you know, we appeal to people along that kind of a, a line. Uh, but the fact of the matter is Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Uh, even when the world was putting him on a cross, what was he saying? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He goes, Jesus goes on, he who believes uh, in him is not condemned in the Son, uh, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the Son of God. And, and the thing is, for someone who is, is, is an unbeliever or has rejected the truth, yes, there's a certain, it's like the sword of Damocles, in a sense, is hanging over their head. Uh, as a matter of fact, at any given moment, you know, we, people tend to think, we all think this, you know, we're going to live, you know, we're going to live forever, we're going to live, you know, die at old age of 99 years old, kind of a thing. But then we, you know, we hear these stories of, of young people, um, you know, being killed in an accident, uh, uh, just a host of different things. And so there is a sense of, of alienation from God that takes place within, you know, the, the natural man, the unbelieving heart. Um, they're, they're under a sense, they're under a sense of condemnation if they don't believe, if they don't put their faith, you know, in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done for us to deliver us. So he says here, basically, he who does not believe is condemned already. In other words, you know, the sentence, in a sense, is hanging over their head. It uh, hasn't taken place yet. Uh, and that's why it's important, you know, that in a sense, everyone outside of Christ is in that condition. And that's why it's important for us to make sure that we're sharing the gospel, that we're reaching out. You know, it's a sphere of people whose lives you touch, nobody else can touch them. They're yours. They're your ministry. God's called you to minister to that particular group of people. So when you feel prompted, when you feel prompted to share the gospel with them, you need to do that. You need to obey the Spirit of God to reach out and say whatever it might be 
uh, that you need to share with them. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People don't want to let go of their behavior. They don't want to let go of their actions. And so therefore, this is the condemnation when the light uh, comes into their life. And the other thing too, remember, uh, you and I are light bearers. And that's why when we're, we're handling something, when we, as, we, as we give the gospel, uh, we need to do it with wisdom. We need to do it with prayer. We need to do it with kindness. Um, because we're, you know, sometimes when that light flashes in on somebody, sometimes it could be like a sword hitting their heart. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and that kind of happened? It's just like, you know, like, whoa, something rose up. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's important uh, that we do it very carefully. Uh, I've always said this. I think our tone is, is very critical, very important, you know, when we share the gospel. Uh, because, again, light is coming in to someone's life, uh, and, and, it, and it reaches in into that heart of darkness. And oftentimes, you know, you can get a, re, you can get a reaction, you get a rejection uh, to that. So we need to do it carefully and lovingly. Um, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Sometimes, too, you know, when you share the gospel with people um, and you sit down and, you know, you reason with them um, and they understand. It's amazing they understand. Don't be surprised if they start avoiding you. Do not be surprised if they start avoiding you. And, uh, but if, you know, if, if, if God has led you to share the gospel with somebody, um, pray for them. Pray for them. Even if they, even, I've had, you know, I've had people... Um, uh, as I worked in a dental lab many years ago, you know, I witnessed the different folks at different times. Uh, <clears throat> witnessed a good friend of, of mine that we hunted together. And, um, and he basically said, I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear it anymore. And then I was witnessing to another guy who worked in a denture department. And, uh, and I, just, I just somehow I knew the Lord was going to save him. And, uh, and so one day he looked at me and said, will you leave me alone? <laughs> So I left him alone. I guess I was probably being overbearing with, with it, you know. It can happen. Um, but he got saved. He got saved about six months later. And uh, so, you know, as we're, uh, people may just avoid us. They may, because the light comes in and all of a sudden it exposes something. And it's amazing, too, when the light of God comes in to someone. Light is revelation. And, and, and God reveals something to them, something they need to do. Um, and there's a struggle with it, just like, just like us in a sense. There's the light of truth that comes into our hearts and into our lives by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we have to decide, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to obey it? Uh, are we going to maybe be... Uh, I think a lot of times with believer, it's not so much a, um, I'm not going to do it, Lord. But I think a lot of times with us, it's kind of like a passive resistance. It's a passive kind of disobedience. When God tells us to do something we don't want to do. Uh, it's kind of like that. I think sometimes we're like that child. Uh, have you ever seen that kind of child? You tell them what to do and they, they pretend they didn't hear you. Okay? They, they kind of ignore you. They pretend they simply did not hear you. I think sometimes, you know, we can be uh, like that because Jesus, we are children, aren't we? And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, I don't care how old you are. You, you are if there's somebody here, is Rita here today? Rita's 92. Rita here, Rita's not here today. She's still a kid. In the light of eternity, she's still a kid. 
We're all, we're all God's kids, right? We're His children. And, uh, and He loves us so. But he who does not truth, does not, excuse me, he who does the truth, rather, comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done uh, in God. So again, God is not angry, you know, with his children. God is not angry with his beloved, with his bride. Uh, it, again, it may need that uh, we need to be uh, corrected, we need to be uh, redirected, and uh, he will do that for us. Now, as we look at verse 2, we realize that there are laws that govern nature. Uh, there are laws that govern nature, like entropy, um, which is basically the law of decay, the, the, the second law of thermodynamics, which is interesting, because the very people that perpetuate evolution, um, entropy basically uh, does not agree with evolution, because entropy means everything's winding down, things are wearing out, things are decaying. Like if you take your house and you shut it up for 10 years, and you come back into the house, what are you going to find? You're going to find mold. You're going to find dust. And you know what dust is? Decay. It's decay. Uh, as a matter of fact, to prove the law of entropy, all we have to do is remember, take out a picture of what you looked at, looked like five years ago. Okay? And you might have been complaining five years ago, but, you know, it's like, gee, I wish I was back then. <laughs> you know? All things, are, all things are wearing down. <laughs> and, and, there's, and there's laws. And, and so, but also to the point here that we see here in verse uh, verses 2 here, that there's a law also to that govern the spiritual realm around us. And Paul brings them out for us as well when he says, there's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus uh, has made me free from the law of sin and death. There's one law that's inescapable, for everyone, but there's another law that supersedes and overrides the other one. And basically, there's that law of sin and death. You know what? It affects everyone. It, but, it, but for many people, it simply controls them to such an incredible degree. But the spirit of life only works in the life of a believer. It's the Holy Spirit. And Paul likens it to a principle. You can call it a principle, but it really is a law. It's a hard and fast law that when the Holy Spirit comes in to, to a person's life, that basically he's eternal life. And he has power over death. Yes, these bodies will decay. Uh, yes, they will die, but they will be redeemed. Uh, they will be resurrected. They will be made new. Uh, and I tell you what, for, all, for, for most of us sitting here, I hope that's good news. Um, it certainly is good for me. And because uh, I realize... Uh, um, as I go to the gym, um, this flesh, this body, it's just, it, it rebels against it. Uh, a lot of times I just have to kind of talk myself in, you need to go to the gym. And sometimes it takes a couple of days for that to kind of get through. And, um, and it's just, it's life, isn't it? That we're just, we're wearing down, we're wearing out. There's, just, there's, there's a law. There's a law that, ta that, that simply takes place here. And again, this other law dominates the non-Christian. And it dominates them even if they don't believe it. You know, people say, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. Does that change anything? No. No, it doesn't change anything at all. Whether they believe it or not, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do. And that's why it's important that we understand the principles of Scripture. Uh, and Paul here is giving us to here, basically, the spirit of life that's only in Christ and Christ alone. 
And again, this, this principle or this law kicks in when we receive Christ into our life. God's eternal power and life. Sometimes it's, it's given different names and so forth. We you know, just refer to the Holy Spirit coming into our life. But Paul here is saying it's a, it's a, it's a principle of God. There's a power. There's, there's a law. And even though perhaps maybe uh, we don't, we're, you know, we're, uh, we're maybe uncertain uh, about heaven, about what that next life and all that is, and we may have questions and doubts about that, but the fact of the matter is, folks, if you have Jesus Christ in your life and when you pass away, uh, God is, that the, the, the truth that you have believed, uh, the truth that we have here in the Word of God, that we will rise from the dead Amen. and we will be eternally with him and what a glorious thing that's going to be and we were just well we talked about that didn't we in revelation about the new heaven the new earth uh, coming down and um and i'll tell you what people think and i even even christians think this that heaven's going to be boring listen the new earth will not be boring the new heavens and the new earth will not be boring you, i think we're just going to be draw, jaw dropping through eternity uh, of the marvels and the things that God... Again, you know, Paul says that, doesn't he? First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I have not seen or ear heard the things that God has prepared, you know, for them who love him. But then he goes on to say he has revealed them. Verse 10. He has revealed them, begun to reveal them to us by his Spirit. But that revelation, in a sense, we're, we're just scratching the dust. We're scratching the surface. Uh, that revelation uh, goes on for us throughout eternity. And what a wonderful thing, you know, that is going to be. Now, here in verse 3, uh, he reminds us here uh, relative to God's law. And Mosaic law, the moral law that we find in the Bible. And again, this is the greatest law that's ever been devised by, you know, ever been devised, period. And it's been devised by God. But you know something? It can't save anybody. See, just, just, just being a good moral person doesn't save anybody. I, I, I love good moral people. Not, that, not if they're self-righteous. That, that's kind of difficult, you know, when you deal with that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I like living around. I always like being around, working with, you know, people that are moral. But the fact is, the Bible says, it cannot save us. That's what the entire Old Testament was about, you know, with the Jewish people. They could simply, not in their own power, not by the flesh. They, they could not accomplish this. And remember, chapter 3, verse 20. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Not the power to be saved. Because remember, Paul teaches us in another place that before the law came, faith came. We see faith operating, what? In the life of Abraham. Uh, so uh, even within that law system that came along later, it was basically by faith. You know, they believed, even though they didn't understand all the dynamics of Jesus Christ and the New Testament and the gospel and how that would all, in a sense, um, you know, basically unpack itself. But they simply believed in what God had showed them. Uh, and as they did, as they simply had that faith, that was the thing that we have a righteousness of God that comes through faith. And we see that that was a righteousness uh, that, that basically came, you know, through Christ, ultimately because he paid the price. But again, as those who look forward in faith. They looked forward to Christ. Just like you and I, we look back. We look back to the cross. We look back what he did. And just even though these Jews, they didn't understand, well, here's a sacrificial thing. I'm to offer this. I'm just going to do it. I can't understand it. I don't, year after year, I can't see, you know, you know the, maybe I can't see the full purpose of it. 
But as they did it, as they yielded their lives by faith, you know, to God, trusting God, um, that um, that was what uh, was was the important issue, the necessary thing. So he says, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. So the, the law required this incredible righteousness. Basically, we couldn't give. But, you know, the thing, again, the law had limitations. And we were weak in our humanity to fulfill it. And, and that's one of the things that Paul's been talking about ever since, you know, uh, chapter 3 here, um, that the, the righteous, you know, the righteous requirement of the law uh, has been wrought for us in Christ because of what he did. He fulfilled it for us. And again, that's the beautiful simplicity of it. All we have to do is believe in his offering, his sacrifice, his redemptive act, and it's ascribed to you. It's ascribed to anyone. That's the beautiful thing about it. Because when it comes to understanding it all, you can't. Did you understand it all when you first got saved? We knew nothing. Our Bible was like this big. Our Bible might have been like one verse, one little truth that sort of you know, pinpricked our heart in, in our life. And that's why there's a lot of things, you know, in the Christian life you, you, can't, you can't figure out. You, you can't lean on your own understanding. But you know what? You have to lean on Him. You have to lean on faith. You have to lean on Bible revelation, you know, what God has spoken, and hang on to that. God's Word is so incredibly important. So I like what he says here. What the law could not do because it was weak, it was limited, uh, through the flesh, uh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So what we could not do, God did. What we could not accomplish, God did. In other words, when you think about the cross, he came, God came himself. Th- that's the gospel. God came himself in the person of his son. And he beat sin. He defeated sin. Isn't it interesting you know, you think about the ignorance, the spiritual ignorance. And here again, these are, the, these are the, the most insightful people on earth. And I'm talking about the Jewish people. Because they had Bible revelation. They had Bible revelation for a couple thousand years. And yet, in their lack of understanding, they're putting them on a cross. It shows you what, what religious people can do who don't have the Spirit of God. We, we need the Spirit of the living God, you know, working within our hearts, working within our lives. And then we understand really what God has done, what God has done for us individually. Like I said, you know, I grew up in a Catholic church, and I used to go to Mass feast days you know, all the time. And, I, and a, there was a, a beautiful marble crucifix, life-size hanging over the altar, hanging from chains, all marble. It was beautiful. And I can remember looking up at that, and I was like, what's that mean? What does that mean? And only as you come to the gospel and get understanding, you realize, for me, it has to be personalized. It's interesting, he died for the sins of the world, but so many people will go into eternity without the protection of Christ. He died for the sins of the world, but it has to be personalized. We have to commit our life and realize that he died for me. He died to, to set me free. He died to save me. And it is. It's this incredible um, revelation of grace. Now, verse 4 is a very potent truth. And I think as we, un- as, as we grapple with it and understand it, 
Uh, it, it's designed, I think, to transform our thinking. He, it says here in verse 4 that the righteous requirement, the righteous requirement of the law, the law of Moses, and we know the requirements there were like mega, right? 613 commands and laws. It's huge, impossible for any one of us to fulfill it. Even if you could fulfill 612, you couldn't anyway. <laughs> Even if we could fulfill, you know, a couple here and a couple there. Um, but you really can't. You really can't fulfill them without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul's trying to tell us here, he says, this righteous requirement of the law, that it might be filled in us. In other words, it's a totally impossible thing would be maybe possible. Remember God says, with him all things are possible. You know, when you think about it, the hope of every Old Testament believer was what you and I possess in Christ, to fulfill the law, to fulfill the law. Not that we've done it personally, but it's been ascribed to us. It's been imputed to us. That we're covered by that. And not only are we covered by that, we begin to experience it wonderfully taking place within our life, within our experience. Because here's what happens for you and me. At times, and hopefully even progressively more, what we find is that we are fulfilling, sometimes accidentally, sometimes unintentionally, we are fulfilling the law of God. Did you ever just sort of marvel at something the Holy Spirit led you to do? It's like you stand back and say, well, that's not me. That's not me. Or you care for somebody. You love, for, you love somebody. You give somebody money. You do something that all of a sudden you realize, wow, I never did that before. That's kind of, kind of against my nature. And what happens is that the Holy Spirit is living the Christ life through us. And, and when it happens, if it hasn't happened much, it should surprise us. It, it should bless us. Amen. But hopefully, it's happening more and more where you're just realizing, and that's the Holy Spirit. I, I know what I said to them. That was the Holy Spirit. Um, John Stott, well-known, international, well-known pastor and, and theologian, he says this <clears throat> about this verse. He says, holiness consists in fulfilling the law the righteous requirement of the law. This is the final answer to the antinomians. They're, they're lawless people. Um, and adherence to this, new, this so-called new morality. Because here's what happens sometimes in, in Christian circles. In the name of grace, we can do whatever we want to do. It's not grace. It's not grace at all. But sometimes the flesh lies to people. A, there is a new morality out there. It's not necessarily a biblical morality, even though sometimes uh, biblical terms might be used. And I think we need to be careful about that. He said, this is the final answer to antinomians, our adherence to this so-called new morality. The, mor the moral law has not been abolished for us. It is to be fulfilled in us. Although law obedience is not the ground of our justification, it is the fruit of it and the very meaning of sanctification. Holiness is Christ-likeness, and Christ-likeness is fulfilling the righteousness of the law. Thirdly, holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And we saw last week in chapter 7. I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time in chapter 7 because it's about, the, it's about that constant back and forth and that struggle and that, you know, that, all that stuff that we're working through. You know, the thing that I don't want to do, I find myself doing it. We don't want to live there in that place of defeat. And oftentimes, even as a Christian, that can speak to our, our situation because, you know, we're maybe trying to huff and puff and do it our, ourselves kind of a thing. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I've known the Lord like 43 or 44 years. I haven't always relied upon the Holy Spirit. There's been times where I was just relying on me. And that's where that Romans 7 in the life of a believer comes in. We can't fulfill the law by ourselves. But it's so wonderful to watch him do it. That's why I hope as we're going through Romans chapter 8 that we develop a new sensitivity to the Spirit of God, a reliance on Him, uh, uh, asking Him you know, to guide us, to direct us. Lord, I got this meeting with people. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me sensitivity. Lord, help me to know what to say. I, I think many Christians can lack that kind of a intimacy, if you will, or sensitivity you know, to the Holy Spirit. We need it. So anyway, uh, uh, wrapping up here what, what this uh, scholar said, holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit, Romans 7, insists that we cannot keep the law because of our indwelling flesh. But Romans 8, 4 insists that we can. And he says we must. Because of what? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So again, we're going to find ourselves accidentally, unintentionally, and sometimes intentionally fulfilling his law as the Holy Spirit lives through us. And one of the things that we, I think it's important that we, we touch on is, you know, the Holy Spirit is likened to a dove. You know what that means? He's gentle. He's sensitive. Paul talks about him being grieved or even being quenched. And we'll talk more about that. But it's important that we have an intimacy with him. I, I think many of us in the beginning had this intimacy with the Holy Spirit. But because of self-will and or pride or besetting sins or whatever, we, we move away you know, from that intimacy, from that place of sensitivity. And, and I think if we continue in that, we just begin to drift more and more and more and more away. And what we really had in the beginning is what we need to get back to. We need to get back to that closeness in our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. As I think Paul is, is, is hoping to do that for us, the Lord actually hoping to do that for us as we look at this particular chapter. Now, he doesn't pressure us, um, but it's something that we need to, to choose. We need to freely choose God's will. God ain't going to force us. Holy Spirit doesn't force you and me to, to, to be in alignment with him. He doesn't force us. He doesn't, you know, throw a, um, a muzzle on us and drag us, you know, with our feet, uh, with our heels digging in and all that. He wants us to choose freely uh, to yield to him, to obey him, to surrender ourselves to him. And he here speaks about, in relation to verse 5, a mindset. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
but those who live according to the Spirit, uh, that they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So we have basically two options here. Somebody once said, the set of the sail determines the course. And just like in, in, in navigation, if you set that sail a certain way, you're going to go in a certain direction. Well, it's true also with our mindset, isn't it? If we just have a, a, a carnal, worldly, or earthly kind of uh, mindset, that's the way in which we're going to go. You know, they used to say years ago, oh, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. But what can also happen is that, you know, there's the, uh, the extreme on that, the opposite. We can be so earthly minded, we're really no heavenly good, are we? And, God, and then the most important thing is for us to have, to, be, to have spiritual impact. Now, are all earthly things the flesh? No. No. Not at all. But I think what Paul here is simply bringing us back to is, you know, reminding us of to bring the Lord into every area of your life. We can do that. We can bring him into every area and every aspect of our lives. One of the things that blesses me so much is when I pray, and sometimes I'll pray about some, some little thing, some insignificant thing. And here the God of the universe cares um, that much about me that he works in that insignificant area. That, that's the awesomeness and grace of our God that he cares about us so intently. And, that, and sometimes that blesses me more than the big things. Somebody else, Lord, you care. You, you care. Just this week. And this happens often. And I'm sure it happens for you too. That you pray for somebody you haven't seen in a while. They just, all of a sudden, you're thinking about them. And you pray for them. And there they are. I see that all the time. And during the course of a week where I'm just saying, I haven't seen somebody in so long. I just start to pray for them. God sometimes brings something in your mind's eye or a name before you. And all of a sudden, in a couple of days, boy, what a coincidence, huh? What a coincidence. No, not at all. You know, it's, it's, it's God working in just the, the, the sometimes the, the, the seemingly insignificant things. But again, putting our focus, you know, our, you know uh, what, did, what did Paul say over in Colossians? Set our mind on things above, not on things on the earth. I, I mean, for most of, most of our day, most of the course of the week, we got our mind set on earthly things because we got our responsibilities, we got our duties, all these things we have to do, but to set our minds you know, upon Christ, even more so than we have here this morning. This is only a primer, in a sense, to remind us. But in verse 6, he said, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Uh, in other words, this carnal mind is simply, it's dead, it's empty. And we've all been there, haven't we? When you just, even as a believer, you just feel, man, I feel so dead. I feel so empty. And perhaps because the set of the sail the set of the mind has been in the wrong direction. That's why, you know what, we got to retreat. And I don't, I'm not talking about, you know, our retreat in October. We've got to retreat from the world. Through the course of a, of a week, we need to retreat with them. We need to get alone with the Lord. For me, when I do it, I need to get away from the house. Get away from your house. Because there's always something to do there. Always something to do. And I like just sort of just going out to a park or going someplace and just getting away with the Lord and the Bible and just to hear from him afresh. That's why Jesus said, was it in, uh, I think it was in, one of, it was in Mark's gospel, he said, come apart for a while. 
Remember he says that? I remember reading one author. He says, if you don't come apart, you will come apart. And true, how true it is. So he tells us why here in verse 7 about this carnal mind, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Uh, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So he's speaking about here this, this, this mindset, this carnal mindset. It expresses itself sometimes in a hostility, you know, a hostile kind of attitude. Sometimes it can be mocking. Uh, sometimes it can just simply be rejecting Bible truth, that kind of thing. Or maybe it's a religious person and that, you know, sometimes religious, you know, we know this because we've all have, most of us have a religious denominational kind of a background where we know people that maybe go to church on a regular basis, but they don't know the Lord. And I, and I didn't go to church, you know, what we did for a while, Margie and I did for a while, we'd, we'd attend Mass, but we'd come out after Mass, and, and I think it's like a lot of Catholics, because I know there's a lot of Catholics here, former Catholics. Uh, we'd come out for Mass and say, did you get anything out of that? No, I didn't get anything out of it either. So I think like a lot of Catholics just kind of drift away. But I remember what it, as, as soon as I heard the gospel, I said, I got my religion. <laughs> kind of fell back on that old crutch. Yeah, I got my religion. And, and I was in a, in a group of, you know, real radical Christians. Margie was saved. I wasn't. And they're all praying. And so... They come to me. Your turn to pray. Well, I know they are a father, you know. That, you, that, you get that memory, you know, you got that committed to memory uh, back there in elementary school. Uh, but sometimes, you know, religious people can sometimes be the most difficult people to get, get the gospel through because it's like, and, and I've talked to people that said, well, you got your religion, I got mine. But here's the issue, does it really work? Does your religion work? Has it changed your life? Carnal mind is not subject to God, nor its truth, nor its laws. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Remember uh, that great statement over in uh, Hebrews eleven six: Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he or she who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and he what? Is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. No, no matter what good thing somebody does, and you look at some of these religions of the world, they got all kinds of ways. They think, well, this has got to please God. Only one thing pleases God, faith. And faith is what? Trusting Him. Trusting Him based on His revealed truth about Himself. You know, when you think about the father of the faithful, Abraham, you know, we just read that story, oh, oh it's wonderful. Can you imagine what it was like for him in a pagan society? Nobody ever witnessed to him, except God came to him. And then God says to him, I want you to just leave your family, leave your home. And he says, I want you to go to a place I'm not telling you yet. I'll let you know when you get there. Would you do that? And he's 70 years old. I mean, look how much junk we've accumulated by the time we hit 50. I was saying to Margie the other day, we got to go through the basement. This is getting out of control. She's the pack rat and I'm the, the guy who throws things away. Every time she goes out and she goes somewhere, she's in Philadelphia this weekend. <laughs> I've been really tempted, I'll tell you. I've been tempted, but it's too cold outside. I'm not going to drag all that stuff out yet. I'll wait till she goes back to Philly again. 
Now, but verse 9, he, he turns to us, uh, and he's telling us here what is our true identity, or the true identity mark of an authentic believer. Now, remember, in verse 8, it was those, those who live after the flesh, in verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, that, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So the issue isn't, you know, being born in a Christian family or belonging to a church or a denominational body or even being baptized. Nothing wrong with those things. But that doesn't make you a Christian. Even, even a person can even assent to the mental assent to the fact that, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, but if it's only intellectual, they're not saved. The one identity mark of the true believer is you got the Holy Spirit in your life. And I want to tell you what, when that happens, you're going to know it. Because for those of us who have had that experience, it's mind-blowing, it's transformational, and it's God-designed for every human being, although people don't want it. Do you know it's the most marvelous gift, it's the most priceless gift that has ever been given? It's God's Son. It's God's Spirit. And, and the, the, the tricky thing about it is, as people assess it outwardly and they think, oh, what do I want that for? Some people think, well, I have to go to church and give money. No, I don't want to do that. You don't have to come to church and give money. You just come to church. Because it's only when God frees the heart does he free the pocketbook. <laughs> See, it's the spirit of God in us. I like this verse, too. It's a Trinitarian verse. You've got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All in verse 9 here. But closing here in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11 are promises. But in order for promises to be actualized, they need to be believed with all your heart. Not your head. They go through your head. But they've got to get into your heart. In order for a promise of God to be actualized, you can hear about it. You can hear people talk about it. You can read about it. But you will not partake of it until you believe. That's standard operating procedure for everybody. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Now, that, that basically takes us back uh, to uh, uh, chapter 6 and verse 6 when he says this. He says, knowing this, that the old man, our old man, our old nature, was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he or she who has died has been freed from sin. And so again, he makes this incredible declaration that our old nature was crucified. And remember, he goes on to say, consider it to be so reckoned. It's a faith thing. It's a faith thing. Well, I don't feel like it. That's always, that's always the issue, isn't it? Because oftentimes we're very much alive. And when he says done away with, it means basically the old nature has been rendered inoperative. It's kind of like having an old jalopy. The battery works, and I've had cars like this, that's why I can relate to this. That you go in, and you turn the key, and the starter kicks over. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't turn on unless you invest a lot of time in it. And the old nature's like that. It's been rendered inoperative, but if you and I go in to that old nature, that old lifestyle, that old way of living, that jalopy will start, our, start up and smoke and everything else and, and it'll kind of get going for a little while. But that's sort of the old man. That's sort of the old nature. But, verse 11, 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I think the one question that remains here, can you say, and be honest, you've got to be honest with yourself, no one, you don't have to answer, but answer yourself. Is the spirit of God in you? Is this, or is the spirit of God having its way with you? Because if the Spirit of God is not in us, we don't belong to Him. And if we're Christians and the Spirit of God is not really having His way with us, we're not happy. Over in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says something here. He's talking about prayer, actually. In verses 9 of chapter 11, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, but to him who knocks it will be opened. And really, Jesus is speaking about, do we really have an appetite and a desire for him? Do we want him? He says, if we do, ask. There isn't one person who has ever honestly, intentionally asked Christ to come into the life because he says, you know, um, he will do that. He, you know, he will answer that prayer. All that come to him, he will in no way cast out. If a son asks bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish for a food, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Well, of course, the obvious answer is absolutely not. It would be ridiculous. But if you then, being evil, know how to give good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We're going to do that in a minute. Whether initially you realize as we talk about these things, maybe God's already been speaking to your heart. You need Him in your life. You need power. And maybe as a, a believer, you realize maybe you've been powerless. Maybe you're tired of a certain kind of a circuit, you know, taking place within your life, within your experience. I find myself quite often asking to be filled. Lord, I need to be filled. If you've ever tried to serve the Lord and you found out you really couldn't, maybe you just need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Lord knows our need this morning. So I'm going to pray here in a moment. And if any of that... Uh, speaks into your life, I'd like to have you stand. Lord Jesus, we look to you this morning, Lord, and we realize, Father, as we read these things, as we consider the matters before us in Scripture, Lord, we need you. We need you to be in us what we cannot be in of ourselves. Some of us, Lord, need the power to become just the right kind of father, the right kind of mother, the, the right kind of employee, the right kind of neighbor. Lord, we see such violence taking place in our culture, in our society. And we know that, Lord, you're the antidote. And Lord, we know that whatever perplexity, whatever issue that we have to face and we can't figure out, Lord, you said you would be our wisdom. So I pray for us this morning. Lord, you see each one of us.
You created us. You know us, Father. You know us so intimately, so thoroughly. And I pray that, Father, if there's some area in our lives where we are trying to fulfill something, but yet without power, Lord, I pray that you would do a fresh work in us. Lord, we look to you for, Lord, a filling to this morning. Whether it be initially, whether it be a fresh baptism, or whether it just be a, a fresh enabling, a fresh empowerment to fulfill your will. Lord, we realize that we can't even love people. We can't forgive people. We can't let go of things unless you enable us, unless you empower us. So, Lord, if in any way we need to be forgiven, Father, forgive us. And impart to us, I pray, fresh new life, Lord, new desire, Lord, a new hunger and a thirst for you to enable us to be Lord, all that you desire us to be. And in it, Lord, we'll give you glory. We'll give you praise. We'll give you thanks. Lord, we'll, we'll live for you. Father, do that, we pray, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.